Welcome to part two of my talk with Judge Robert Gerber as we continue to dive deeper into the bankruptcy trends he identified in part one of our series. Today, we'll be focusing on the rise of bankruptcy as a vehicle for addressing mass torts, the role of common law of bankruptcy in these sorts of cases, as well as whether bankruptcy is still serving its purpose in light of the observed trends we have discussed. Additionally, we will also speak about whether bankruptcy should account for and help advance the public good or public interest. In the first part of our conversation, Judge, we discussed bankruptcy trends that you observed over the course of your career, as well as your views concerning common law of bankruptcy. In light of your common law of bankruptcy philosophy, I want to now turn to a trend you noted early on in our discussion, which is the rise of bankruptcy as a vehicle for addressing mass torts. In my mind, it sort of encapsulates a number of things that we've discussed, including changes in the nature of bankruptcy cases, as well as a growing discomfort among appellate courts with relying on bankruptcy judges' expertise and discretion. How did we get here? We got here as a consequence of a number of developments in the non-bankruptcy world, giving rise to issues with which bankruptcy courts would then have to deal. I don't have numbers to offer you, Eileen, but it's my belief that there for sure has been an increase in mass tort cases. The dominant factor, I think, is an explosive growth in mass tort litigation. I don't know if that's growth in the number of injured people or in injured people seeking redress, but one way or the other, they have legitimate needs and concerns in getting compensation in any cases in which they've been wronged. Another is the massive damages exposure that these cases can entail in any instances in which an enterprise is found liable. And still another is the massive costs of defense, particularly in the aggregate, whether or not the defendant enterprise is found to be liable in any particular action. And in some, though less than all, there are other consequences of the mass tort exposure. The LTL court identified some of these, in part when it distinguished other mass tort cases in which the filings were entirely appropriate, like Johns Manville, A.H. Robbins, and Dow Corning. These could include, by way of example, insufficient resources or liquidity to pay defense costs, interference with ongoing operations, or the ability to access the capital markets. Then, another factor that's caused mass tort bankruptcies to be filed more commonly, in my view, is that the bankruptcy courts that dealt with these kinds of claims in the earliest and most famous cases, Johns Manville, A.H. Robbins, Dow Corning, did quite well in handling them, as have courts more recently, again in my view, such as the various diocese cases and the Boy Scouts case. And I think that history has given the bankruptcy community some confidence that bankruptcy courts can deliver effective justice in this area. And though this is more of a societal concern than a prospective debtor's concern, we typically have hundreds, if not thousands, of folks competing for access to limited pots of insurance, of debtor assets. And we have a societal interest in achieving, insofar as we can, comparable recoveries for victims with comparable injuries and avoiding a situation where recoveries go to a favored few ahead of others who might be suffering just as much. 
huge numbers of cases can flood the non-bankruptcy courts. And with bankruptcy, we have the potential for getting recoveries to victims, to survivors, much more quickly than many of the survivors could get their recoveries by lining up to try their cases. So it's no surprise to me that we've seen uh, so many uh, mass tort cases in the last several years. And what role does common law of bankruptcy play, if at all, in these sorts of cases? More than a little, I'd suggest. A common mechanism in mass tort cases is to create one or more trusts to be funded by the debtors and others upon which victims, survivors can draw to get their recoveries based on objective criteria to determine their entitlements. A uh, protocol or matrix to lay out mechanisms for getting recoveries into victims' pockets. If this is what happened to you, this is what you're going to get. A wonderful mechanism, in my view. There's nothing in the code that speaks to that expressly, other than the largely blank check on what plans may provide under 1123b6. But for sure, that's a salutary practice, helping without express code authorization the victims, the survivors we all want to help. Another is channeling injunctions, that after contributions are made into the trusts I just described, and then that the non-debtor contributors get releases so they don't have to pay twice or three times or a dozen times. That's particularly important when we're asking insurers to kick in dollars into a plan, because after all, fairness to the insurers requires that they not be on the hook for writing another check after that, or worse yet, check after check after that. Here I need to mention that my firm is involved in a case that involves channeling injunctions and such releases, so I could be criticized for not being objective. But I felt this way for a long time, going back to the days when I was still on the bench. Channeling injunctions and releases of this type aren't expressly mentioned in the code, but the code doesn't forbid them either. And their propriety is well established in part under 1123b6, but even more clearly under bankruptcy common law. Then to a considerable degree, I think the traditional claims allowance structure can work here as well. I also need to disclose that I'm the future claims representative in the Diocese of Rockville Center Chapter 11 case in the Southern District of New York So my constituency and I have a vested interest of the success of that Chapter 11 case. But I've been impressed by the way by which traditional bankruptcy statutory procedures have been supplemented by effective case management techniques, such as more detailed proofs of claims, mechanisms to deal with legal issues common uh, to many uh, victims' claims. And I think that Thoughtful bankruptcy judges have shown how they can, by a host of case management means, expedite recoveries uh, to survivors. I don't know whether you call these case management measures bankruptcy common law, but whatever you call them, they're once more a mechanism as to which the code is silent, but which plainly helps the victims we all want to help. But this use of bankruptcy to deal with mass torts is not something that's universally popular, is it? No, it isn't. And there's debate about its use with serious arguments on each side. A recurring issue we see debated is whether bankruptcy courts are the proper venue for addressing mass torts. 
that debate can be sliced and diced into whether they're never appropriate, which is a notion I could never agree with on the one hand, or whether they're still a highly useful tool when the financial distress is real and there's good cause for filing them in light of factors like I discussed a moment ago. And I think the LTL court recognized a host of facts that if shown in an appropriate case could nevertheless easily justify a bankruptcy filing. So I think the more serious debate is whether, on the facts of a given case, the requisite financial need is there. Other issues surround how bankruptcy courts would employ the tools at their disposal, even when the cases continue. I personally believe that it's even more important to ensure that the resources are there to satisfy the tort claims than it is to decide the propriety of the filing. I'm talking, of course, about protecting victims from fraudulent transfers. Ensuring funding of the liabilities, adequate funding, which ironically we saw in LTL, but isn't always there, as Judge Gropper found in Tronauts, is in my mind of huge importance. For me, avoiding fraudulent transfer risk is of greater importance than the improper venue risk. And if we're going to employ the claims estimation process, which I think is a useful tool, a hugely useful tool, but which some might say is a blunt one, it's got to be done in a way so the claims are estimated in a sufficient amount. Judge, do you think that Congress needs to step in and draw the line in the balancing act between the interests of the debtor versus claimants? Not in my view, Eileen, and I'm not confident that the Congress could legislatively get its arms around the subtleties of this balancing act. I think it's much better to be done by judges, by the courts. In LTL, when it was discussing what kind of financial distress would support a filing, the Third Circuit observed properly, in my view, that the delicate balancing between encouraging an early filing versus risking a premature filing could be a fine line in some cases, but that it was nonetheless a line that the judges in our bankruptcy system vested with equitable powers were in the best position to draw. So set up standards, alert the judges to what they need to focus on, and let them do their jobs. And in my opinion, Congress is too prone to respond to lobbying, which in this context, too, we can expect from each of the warring parties, warring factions in cases like these. And in my view, the issues we're talking about can be much more justly handled by the judicial branch. Of course, bankruptcy cases are incredibly expensive, but effective case management can ameliorate that in part, and seriatim litigation in individual plenary cases is extremely expensive too. And I think that the bankruptcy process is more likely to get recoveries into the pockets of victims sooner and with more certainty than hundreds or thousands of individual lawsuits will. Judge, in light of everything we've discussed, I want to ask you some final questions. In your opinion, is bankruptcy still serving its purpose in light of the observed trends that we've talked about? Is it living up to its full potential? What is or should be bankruptcy's role for society? Let me start with those questions uh, and break them up one into the next. 
I think that bankruptcy very much is still serving its purpose, but that it could do better yet with some statutory changes and changes in the appellate case law, which as a political matter, and because of the way Article Three courts uh, think, I'm not at all optimistic uh, will ever be forthcoming. I also shared with you my thoughts about the lobbying process. And as I said earlier in this discussion, I think that if we're ever going to get thoughtful and balanced change, the amendments are going to have to be proposed not by those who have personal agendas, but instead by good government groups like the ABI, the National Bankruptcy Conference, and the American College of Bankruptcy. But I wonder whether that's naive. Lastly, when we're speaking about bankruptcy, is there a quote-unquote public good or public interest that we should take into account? And how should courts define it? Eileen, I think there plainly is, though in part, it's like Potter Stewart pornography. I know it when I see it. To an extent, we see it in the early origins of bankruptcy law in England, then the colonies, and then in the early days of the Republic, when bankruptcy started as a remedy amongst merchants to achieve equalities of distribution and to eliminate races to grab assets. To an extent, though not as much as I'd like, we see it in Supreme Court case law, as in Bill Disco, and though it may only be impliedly, in Jevic. I think we all care about successful reorganizations, saving jobs, helping the communities in which our debtors operate, all in addition to the traditional goals of equality of treatment amongst similarly situated creditors and maximizing their recoveries. So in the corporate reorganization context, I think there are definitely a host of public interests that I could see covering the societal interests that our bankruptcy system serves, which go beyond the needs and concerns of the individual stakeholders in a given case, even though those latter needs and concerns incident to any particular judicial decision may need to be paramount. Judge, so how much, in your view, can bankruptcy courts advance the public good? Well, Eileen, other than just doing our jobs, the answer to that last question you asked is subject uh, to legitimate policy debate. I wrestled with that in a monograph that I wrote on the 10th anniversary of the filing of the GM bankruptcy on my watch, where GM's successful 363 sale and survival back in 2009 had a tremendously positive effect, not just on GM itself, but on about 800,000 jobs and employers other than GM itself. When I had the GM case in my courtroom and I heard the evidence, I learned that at least the majority and perhaps the great bulk of the value of a GM vehicle would come from the supplier chain, the vendors who supplied the components and raw materials that would wind up in a given car or truck. And I well knew that GM and Chrysler sales would be important to many supplier chain entity survival, just as they would be to GM and Chrysler themselves. So I asked myself about 10 years later whether saving the supplier chain should have been a concern of mine, and how much should I as a bankruptcy judge be taking into account the good of others, like the supplier chain, or for that matter, the public good. And relatedly, could I 
or should I be looking out for communities and others who, while not creditors in any sense in which creditors normally would be understood, would have a huge interest in the outcome of the case. It never mattered in GM because the case for the 363 sale was so overwhelming anyway. But I've since come to wonder whether I should have considered the public interest or public good or could have. I didn't have to rely on the public good there, and I never reached that issue. But for the next case that comes down the road, I'd suggest to the bench and bar that there is room for looking out for the public good, at least in the context of 363 sales, where such sales are an alternative to other options, such as awaiting the confirmation of a plan or perish the thought liquidation. As I've observed, sales under Section 363 of the Code are subject to what I call the common law of bankruptcy, which, as I've noted, I very much believe to exist. And where is there? There's nothing in the Code commanding otherwise. The fact that many bankruptcy court decisions are governed solely by the common law of bankruptcy increases the extent to which a bankruptcy judge can do good. Judge, then in that case, to the extent that a bankruptcy court should consider the broader impact on the public good or public interest, where should one draw the line? I think I answered that in part, but not fully. On discretionary matters, we can take some measures uh, to achieve that. If it's a pure question of law, then I think the judge must decide the pure question of law and do exactly what the law tells the judge to do. And back to the discretionary matters where it can be considered, I think that in most cases, the public good will be obvious. And if it isn't obvious, if the public good isn't obvious, I don't think it should be considered. But even when the public interest is clear, I don't see how anything can be done without at least common law authority. And for sure, none of it can be done in a way that contradicts the code. With all of that said, Eileen, here we're talking about matters of first impression. And I'm not so arrogant to think that my thoughts on this are the only reasonable ones. Well, Judge Gerber, it has truly been a pleasure and honor to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much for sharing your invaluable insights and observations and for such a fantastic discussion. I personally have learned so much and the things we've discussed today, I know will continue to inform how I think about bankruptcy and its role in the largest sense after we part ways today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into DebtWire's Legal Lens, a monthly series on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. Subscribe or download Legal Lens episodes on Apple or Spotify. Until next time.